in the 11th chapter. We come now in dealing with the kind of the place of Israel in God's economy. We've got to remember that um, when God chose Abraham, and I've been doing a lot of work with the life of Abraham in these past couple of weeks. When God chose Abraham, he didn't choose Abraham for the benefit of Abraham only, or even for his descendants. He chose Abraham to be the vehicle through whom all the world will be blessed. Oftentimes, when we think of the covenant God made with Abraham, we focus on he'll be a great nation, people of Israel, and taking the land. And we tend to ignore, to some degree, the most important part of his covenant blessing with Abraham, and that all the world will be blessed to him. How is all the world blessed to him? Jesus is the only way. And so we need to remember that God chose Abraham as the pathway to Christ. So whatever we will say about Israel must always be kept in the mindset of Jesus, that it all relates to Jesus. We live in a day in a culture now sometimes, and, and this has been a fairly recent thing in, in American history, where uh, American Christian history, where we have this idea that, there, that God still has a separate plan for Israel, that, that, he, that they can still come to him through the old covenant. Well, that's just an absurdity. All you have to do is read the scriptures and know it's not true. The Hebrews says it's not true. The old covenant's dead. Dead means Dead. I don't, that's one of the easiest words to understand. So it's not there anymore. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come through the Father but through me except for the people who are Jewish. He didn't say that. He said, that's the only way. And so when you, when you begin to create avenues for people to be exempt from what God plans, you move out of the realm of Scripture into the devices of your own imagination. And we're really good at imagining the way we want things to be. So here's what he says in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off. Now he's going to use an analogy from the area of agriculture. Paul has been criticized to some degree. Uh, Some have said that he made some mistakes in his analogy. Turns out he didn't. And I'll point what that is in a minute. But one thing to remember is any story, any analogy has as his purpose to illustrate. It is not to be in perfect harmony with the details. Uh, You may not realize this, but oftentimes my illustrations are based on fact. Sometimes I enhance the illustration to give it a greater sense of purpose or to be funnier. I'm not telling a lie, I'm telling you the truth, but I I may enhance certain parts of it to make it to make it to make the illustration fit better. And we should not be surprised at that. It's just a common literary device. Now, I'm not saying that this happens here, but what we need to realize is the purpose of illustrations are to shed light, not for you to go through the details and pick them apart. If you do that, it's a foolishness. Here it is having to do with an olive tree. There are two um, kind of fruits that represent Israel in Scripture, the olive and the grape. And so here it says, some of the branches were broken off. And he's talking about the, how the Gentiles being saved uh, of the olive tree. And you, being a wild olive, was grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So what he's saying is, and, I'm, and listen, this is not my field of expertise. So if those of you that are smarter in this than I am, don't go correcting me in the, in the, when I ask questions because uh, it's not going to sit well. 
Uh, so grafting in, so when you graft something, you, you, you take something that is grown or that is growing up that's usually healthy. And you take something that's struggling or that you want to create something new and you cut a slice of it off and you graft it in. You kind of place it in and you make the two come together and it helps. In the olive growing business, sometimes they would take a healthy olive tree and, uh, excuse me, a wild olive tree and they would take a healthy branch and stick it into the wild olive tree to make it grow the olive they want. Normally, they didn't stick a wild olive into a healthy one, which is what Paul says here. But the purpose was so that, that the part that was grafted in could become you know, strong or could take something over. Here, the, the idea is grafting in the wild branch into the healthy olive tree so that the wild branch may benefit some have said that that never happened, that you never took the wild and, and, and grafted it into the healthy. But there's been some archaeological evidence to depict that in ancient Israel, sometimes what they would do is that if a fairly healthy tree stopped producing the way it should, it would take the wild olive branch in there to kind of give it some life and invigoration. Now, the, 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 the olive tree kind of represents Israel, but it represents God's people, God's will. The wild one represents Gentiles. So what he's saying is this. The wild one, the Gentiles, were grafted in among them to become takers of the rich root. The root is the key, the rich root of the olive tree to get that nourishment from there. So do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So in other words, the danger, as Paul wrote to Rome, and the church there was predominantly Gentile. And by the time Paul wrote, the Gentiles were starting throughout Christianity, with the exception of Israel and Jerusalem, were becoming the stronger part of the Christian faith. In other words, most Christians were Gentile. Very, very few were Jewish. So it was easy to become somewhat arrogant, as we are tend to do, and to start patting themselves on the back and thinking that they were God's people and that, you know, that the Jews were kind of flowing away. Paul is saying, remember, you were taken by God and grafted in. Because remember, Christ came from Jewish faith. And all of that goes back to Abraham. So you were grafted in to this olive tree for the purpose of producing fruit, which is the ultimate mark of the faith. So he says, don't be arrogant. You don't support the root. The root supports you. Verse 19, he says, you will say, but branches are broken off so that I might be grafted in. Notice verse 20, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith, do not be conceited with the fear. In other words, Israel was rejecting Jesus, and so, like pruning, was breaking off the branches. <laughs> Today, my wife pointed to a tree in our yard and said, you need to prune that back some. I want to say, do it yourself if you think it needs pruning, but I didn't say that because I'm not stupid. I said, yes, dear, I'll get to it later. And uh, maybe in 2021, I'll get around to it. But you prune it back. And so sometimes you prune things back so things will grow. But this isn't a pruning. This is a breaking off. Uh, when we lived in um, Bridgeport, we had about 50 oak trees in our property, in our house. And there were all sorts of dead branches. And, 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 and what, you should go off and cut them off. But normally there would be a couple, two, three really good rains and storms. And it knock all the dead branches in my yard, which was always glad. Because then i go pick them up for firewood. And I wouldn't have to do it. But you, you break off the bread, dead branches. Why? They're of no value. They're of no use. Let me show this real quick. Too many times within the church, there are people 
that are really of no value to the church. They're kind of like dead branches. Someone used to say there's three types of wood in the church. I have a fourth, but I won't share it. There's, there's dead wood, there's driftwood, and there's firewood. You know? and, and the thing about it is, a lot of times there are people in the church, they're, they're just dead. They don't, they don't contribute to the cause of what's trying to go on. Paul was uh, saying the, the people of Israel had rejected Jesus. They were broken off so you could be grafted into his place. So don't be arrogant. Verse 21 says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So here's the thing. If, if he was going to take the people of Israel and not spare them because they had become of no value, dead. Why wouldn't he do the same to the Gentiles who were grafted in? And when you become arrogant, you begin to lose the sense of service and purpose that is so necessary to be a part of the Christian faith, to be a part of the church. And so he says then, behold then, verse 22, the kindness and severity of God. Now, notice the, 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 the contrast. Kindness and severity. They both exist at the same time. God is a holy God. Severity is not by human standards, but the willingness of God to discipline, to bring judgment. To those who fail, there was severity. But to you, God's kindness. If... You continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. He's not talking about losing salvation, but he's talking about the lack of fruitful productivity. One of the things that, that I constantly have to evaluate in my own life is whether or not I am being useful to what God wants. Now, I, have, I, have a, I have a saying, I maybe shouldn't tell you this, but I will. Everybody has a cost and a value. You know that, right? And some people's cost rises above their value. And you're like, Lord, okay, I've had enough of them. <laughs> you know, my fear is I get to that place in life with God. Hey, God. And God says, you know, David, your value is drop below what you're costing me here. The arrogance sometimes that we have, the, the sense of, of valuing ourselves over others, which is what they were doing. The, the, the idea that other people don't belong. The idea that, that I'm better than that person because their sin is greater than my sin, whatever that means. We, we, we get to a point where we realize that we're no longer serving and, and helping and bringing people to Christ. What we're doing then, when we fail to be that type of salt and light is that we're becoming slowly dying branches that don't produce fruit. That's, and I, I constantly, almost, not on a daily, but I do it on a weekly basis. I'm constantly saying, Lord, I don't want to be that guy who does more to hinder your kingdom than help it. I don't want to be the fruitless branch when I was in Bridgeport, I, uh, early in Bridgeport, we decided to grow. I, I planted some tomatoes in a pot and some jalapenos and, a, and a bell peppers. 
And, and I grew, I grew, I've always grown tomatoes well. I don't really care for them. And I grow jalapenos well. But that bell pepper, I just couldn't. That bell pepper plant was horrible. And it, but it grew one bell pepper. One. But at least it had fruit. It was one bell pepper plant. At least bear one piece of fruit. <laughs> Be at least a one fruit kind of Christian. But the truth is, we need to be sure, and I, and I, and I have to do this all the, all the time I do. I was, doing it today, I was doing it this morning. Lord, help me be sure that I have greater value to your kingdom than I do cost. I don't want to be a dead branch. Because here's what I know. When I stop producing fruit, I'm no use to God. Not anymore. And this verse 23 says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. So if God can tear them off, break them off, God can graft them back in. If they don't continue in their unbelief, notice the, 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 the primary importance of faith. I just spent six weeks dealing with faith. Faith is the key to the Christian life. Someone today put something up, and I understood it. They said Noah wasn't saved by grace. Noah was saved by obedience. I corrected them and I said there was no obedience if not for grace. Noah was purely saved by grace. With grace comes faith. It is the distinguishing characteristic of the Christian life. And so we must be sure that we live by faith. And the Jews didn't have faith in Christ. But he's saying crafting them in is connected with faith. Verse 24 says, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to the nature. So he's recognizing that normally you don't graft the wild into the, the domestic kind, which is contrary to nature. How much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their olive tree? So here, here is Paul warning the Gentiles at Rome. Don't get cocky and arrogant. About what God's doing in your life. And, and, you know, we need to honor God and thank God and praise God for what he does in our life. We don't need to get cocky about it. And I, I walk that fine line of saying, yes, God's working. God's doing all these great things. All this is happening. And, and I've got to be sure that I don't get too cocky about it. Don't take too much credit for it. Don't, don't take any credit for it, as a matter of fact. And it's... it's when God is working in your life and blessing you, which is a tremendous thing, sometimes those are the greatest temptations. You have to be careful. But he's not through. Verse 25 says this, For I want you, brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mysterion, this mystery, this something that is yet to be revealed, but is, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. How's that? Thanks, James. Appreciate you, man. Man, oh, man. 
Lost my train of thought. He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. That's, that's a tough place to be, is that arrogance, to be wise in your own estimation. Yeah, I've been there. He says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. He already talked about that earlier. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So he says this. For right now, there is a hardening in Israel. They are rejecting Jesus. We see that today. So that a full or complete, a maturing number of Gentiles can come. The hardening of the Jews, which was by their own choice, but God gave them over that hardening, just like Pharaoh, has allowed an opportunity for Gentiles to come pouring into the faith. And it has. But, he also says this. When the fullness of Gentiles has come, and so all Israel then will be saved, just as it is written. And he, and he quotes there, I think. Uh, and so when he, when he says all Israel will be saved, this is confusing. And this is where people deviate, and this causes a problem. Israel, some take, there are places in Scripture in the New Testament where Israel refers to the church, or this, and the children of Abraham refer to the church. But all throughout Romans, basically Paul, Israel refers to Israel, people. So some think here that all Israel refers to the whole church, but that's really grammatically difficult because if grammatically and syntactically Israel is referred to the nation of Israel, you can't all of a sudden mix your metaphors and expect people to understand that. So they can't. It has to refer to the, to the Jewish people. And so the key is what does all mean? Well, all does not mean every. He's not saying every person in Israel will be saved. But as a whole, in other words, when, when the completed number has been saved. When, when those that are going to be saved have been saved. Um, there's really not even an indication here that sometimes we take it to mean that at the end there'll be a great surge of Israelites, people, Jewish people being saved. It really, it doesn't even say that. The simple idea is all that are going to be saved. When all the Israelites are saved, that's what it's talking about. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, that's Jesus. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that's the people of Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Those will be forgiven. This goes all the way back to the original covenant. The original covenant was forgiveness. It is found in the one who comes from Zion, that is Jesus. Now, that's, this is where people will sometimes say that there's a separate path in the old covenant for Israel. But it just says, going back to the Old Testament, the one who comes from Zion, Christ will save them just as he saves the Gentiles. In fact, this whole passage argues against a separate path for Israel. It argues that Israel and Gentiles are grafted into the same tree. If you're grafted into the same tree, there's not a different system of roots. It's one tree. So you have, you have to cut loose of the idea that there is a different path for Israel or the Jewish people. There's not. It doesn't say that anywhere. I, talk, I know the places where people look at it, and I read it. You're taking it out of context. It doesn't say that. It always says through Jesus. It has always been God's plan. So you know how I oftentimes tell you that you have to look at Scripture in its totality, and you have to understand the Old Testament's book of promise and the New Testament's book of fulfillment, and it all points to Jesus? Because if you don't see that, that's where you come up with some of these crazy ideas people come up with. If you don't see all of God's revelation as pointing to Jesus, which is what it does, then you're going to get off on tangents that aren't biblically supported. Unless, of course, you cut and paste it, which some people do. 
So from verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. In other words, from the standpoint right now, the gospel of Jesus, they're enemies because they have rejected the gospel. That's your benefit. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And that's because of God's promise to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're still God's people. They haven't ceased to be the people God chose. I mean, he still loves them. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, he made a promise to Abraham who'll keep his promise. But that promise is found in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 30. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy unto all. And those, here's what he's saying. You were once disobedient, Gentiles, pagans, but God has saved you. And in saving you, he has showed the Jews that they are not the only people to come to salvation. And as such, as other places, said has made them envious. So too, at some point, they will begin to come to Christ as well. Right now, they're kind of shut up in disobedience. Some places, Paul refers to being a prisoner of sin in other places. I preached a few weeks ago. When Paul writes, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the same thing. We are shut up within disobedience and sin. It is God who unlocks and opens the door for our salvation. Because Israel has rejected him, he has allowed them to continue in that rejection. But at some point, when God chooses, he will bring about a loosening so that people of Israel will begin in greater numbers to some point to turn to him, at least to a point where those who are going to be saved will be saved. And all of this is for his glory and honor. So this is a way of keeping us humble. I look at it this way. I tend to think that most of heaven will be Baptists, but I have to remember it won't be. Probably more percentage-wise than anything else. I think I'm confident of that. And I say this all the time. When I get to heaven, in case you're wondering, yes, I'll make it. There are going to be people there that I never thought would be there. It's a humbling thing. And there will be some people there that I thought that aren't. And I have no one in mind at this moment. Now I do, but no, I didn't before. <laughs> Who is it? It's no one I'm looking at, I promise you. No. What, what we have to realize is we share the gospel. And we let Jesus take care of who's getting in. It's not my place to say you're not getting in or you're not getting in. And there are things in life I don't understand and things in life I can't explain, and I'm comfortable with that. And if, if when I get to heaven, well, I will get there, but when I get there, if there are things that happen that I didn't fully expect or understand, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be okay with it, right? I'm not going to say, well, you know, Lord, I, was, I thought this was going to happen and, and something else happened. I'm not real thrilled. I'm, I'm not going to say that. I honestly think there are people right now that when they get to heaven, if the end times didn't turn out the way they predicted, that they're going to be upset with God. 
I, I think I've met people like, if it doesn't go the way they planned it out on their maps and charts, they're going to be upset. I'm just like, you kidding me? I just won't be there. I haven't worked it all out. And so what I'm saying is, this is kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, <clears throat> let God handle who gets saved, okay? Let him deal with that. You know what our task is? Share the gospel, period. That's it. It's our, after, after we, we honor God, that's number one. After that, our primary task, above all other tasks, above everything else we do, is to bring people to Jesus. And disciple them and love them. I got all that. In ministry, I got all that. But we get people to Jesus. And let Jesus deal with the things that he does. And so this is a humbling reminder to us not to get caught up in this group is not going to be there, and that group's not going to be there, and blah, 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 blah. Let God work through it. And then he ends this three-chapter section with the benediction, doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. I mean, that, this is the wisdom and knowledge that come from God to us, okay? It's not that we generate. There is a depth of wisdom and knowledge from God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I cannot begin to understand God. You just can't. We can't take God, we talk about the time, and put God in a box. And we do that sometimes. I do that sometimes. I shared with someone the other day. And, and so don't be upset when I say this because it may, may, may hurt your way of thinking. We cannot let theology interfere with reality of our lives. In other words, what I mean is this. Don't get so caught up in your theological systems that you forget the reality is that we are sinful people deserving hell, saved by the grace of God, to glorify and honor Him and share the glory of God and the gospel with other people. All the theology, and listen, I'm a huge I mean, listen, my, my, I'm big into theology. I have, uh, I'm not going to worry about anybody matching theology with me. I'm good to go. But that is secondary. My system of belief is secondary to the reality of people being lost, needing to hear the gospel. And so I am amazed at the way God works. And I've noticed that as sound as my theology is, sometimes my theology cannot explain all that God does. That's a humbling place to be. I have all the answers, God. I have this system in place, God. Sometimes I can't explain <laughs> how you work. That's a good place. It reminds me who's God. Reminds me who's God. It reminds me, i got to go back to the Bible and start reading up a little bit more. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So verse 33 said, Who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? No one. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No one. For him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Think about that. 
From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul ends this little three section, three chapter section, almost like he's ending a letter with the doxology and the glory to God. And as I read through, anytime I read through Romans, but especially as I read through chapter 19 and 11, and there's such depth there, it is a reminder to me that my primary task is to honor God and help other people come to Jesus and get them there. And not worry about how God works out the details. What I find interesting, then, I'll do this next time, is in chapter 12, it says, therefore, and he skips all the way back to chapter 8. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. The all of 19th in the chapter, 19 in chapters 19 and 11, is about transformation of our minds to the mind of God. Okay, I've got a few minutes for uh, some questions if you want to ask them. I'll do my best to answer them. Yes. Correct. That's what I said, that it's not about losing your salvation. It's about no longer having value. It's the same thing about salt losing its saltiness. It doesn't cease to be salt. It's just ineffective. So the dead branch, from a Christian perspective, is just a branch that has no longer produced fruit. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the passage applies to generations. I, just think, I, don't, I, don't, I don't look at it that way. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, that would be accurate. What he's saying there is that your coming to Christ has done two things. It has shown them that Gentiles may come to Christ. And it has also shown them that they have to come to Christ. So the jealousy that he says otherwise, other, in other places. So they're going to be shown mercy because of the mercy shown you. So they still have to come to Christ, but the Gentiles are evidence of God showing mercy to a disobedient people. So if he showed mercy to the disobedient Gentiles... He will show mercy to the disobedient Jews if they come to Christ. Yes, sir. Yes, they're saved by faith. All people have all times have been saved by faith in trusting God. The faith before Christ, we call that an anticipatory faith. It was a faith that was an anticipation of Jesus. Not that they thought about it that way. It just was. 
It was the faith that preceded him that when Christ came was made final out, such as the faith of Rahab from the very first sermon that I preached this year. She was not a Jew, but she was saved because of her faith, which was evidenced by her uh, actions. Well, we're going once, and we're sold. I'm not even getting it twice. Sorry, Joe, we're stopping at 7, brother. I know you want me to go to 7.15. Not going to do it.